Today in the garage, we have Kelsey Sitar and Pavel Milcherik of the Calgary-based law firm Sitar and Milcherik, Criminal Trials and Appeals. Born and raised in Calgary, Kelsey Sitar is a well-regarded trial and appellate attorney, often defending clients in complex cases. She has authored and co-authored numerous articles appearing in the Canadian Criminal Law Review and has mentored students at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law, where she teaches criminal procedure. She is currently sitting as the Vice President of the Criminal Defense Lawyers Association in Calgary. Pavel Milcherik has developed a reputation in the Alberta Bar as a tough litigator with a practice that includes both serious criminal litigation as well as related civil litigation. As a trial and appellate lawyer, Pavel has appeared in all levels of court with a recent success in a civil matter permitting his client to advance a negligence claim against the Calgary Police for failing to adequately investigate her sexual assault allegations in the matter of Renalis versus Teddy. Pavel is also the editor of the blog, The Defense Toolkit, which won the Canada Law Blog Award for its weekly summary of the top three cases in criminal law. I find it to be a great resource that allows me to keep updated with current criminal decisions in Canada. Both Kelsey and Pavel are set to appear before the Supreme Court of Canada as co-counsel in the case of R versus Tessier, where we hope to finally get a clear pronouncement as to whether the lack of a police caution can impact the voluntariness of an accused statement. In today's Law Garage, Kelsey and Pavel tell us about their criminal law journey that took them from Toronto to Calgary, their lessons along the way, and their experience as co-counsel with the legendary Hirsch Walsh. Whether you're driving your BMW X5, shredding your fender, or drafting a leave application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. I want to thank you both for being here today. I know that prior to Justice Cooper's appointment, he had aspirations of expanding the Law Garage podcast beyond the local bar. So I'm happy that we have you zooming in from Calgary to share your experiences in criminal law. Pavel, you and I go way back to my very first law-related experience when you and I met at Hicks Block Adams the first day of articles on a Sunday to be uh, oriented to the firm. And uh, we've known each other ever since. So thank you for being here. And I, as I understand it, both of you have gotten your start in criminal law practicing in Toronto. Well, um, I guess uh, that's where the career kind of started. Uh, almost uh, a little bit before that, we were both uh, at the uh, CLASP at Osgoode Hall Law School, which uh, you know involved some criminal representation of clients in courtrooms and that sort of thing. But, but then, uh, of course, I started articles with Hicks Block Adams, uh, where we met. Uh, after that, I went to uh, work for Stephen Bernstein and Adam Newman for a couple of years. Then we moved out to Calgary, started up our own practice. But, uh, you know, the early, uh, early years were uh, uh, very common to most people, right? <laughs> Running around the uh, uh, downtown courthouses for uh, you know twenty plus lawyers uh, who were giving you instructions uh, morning and afternoon. As I recall, Pavel, you had the big corner office at the firm. Oh, that's right. Uh, I think there was four of us that uh, fit into something that's about the size of a walk-in closet. Uh, so we got to know each other quite quite a bit. I think I can't remember if you and I were back to back, but it certainly felt like it. (laughs) And how about you, Kelsey? Where did you get your start? 
Yeah, so I, same as Pavel. So I was at CLASP and actually um, ended up assigned to both the criminal and the women's division, which at that point in time meant I was doing almost entirely criminal law. Um, CLASP at that point in time at least had a policy that they only represented women charged with domestic violence offenses. And with the Toronto Police Services mandatory charging policy, there was a lot of that work. So effectively, that was all I did as a student. And um, I spent a summer at the Spanish uh, Center for Spanish Speaking People's Legal Clinic. Uh, I don't speak Spanish, so that's a whole other story. And then I'll ultimately articled with uh, what was then Greenspan White that became Greenspan Partners while I was there as an associate, um, articling with Todd White and, and Eddie Greenspan. And how was your articling experience there? It was wild. Like I remember that day that I think all third year students will remember second year students when like the phones are ringing and you're trying to book interviews and you're waiting to see if anybody's going to phone you. And I happened to not plan a vacation to Alberta very well. And so I was actually in Calgary when people were calling to book interviews, which meant those calls started coming in at about 530 in the morning. Um, and so I was answering the phone and, and my mom was checking my voicemail and all of a sudden went white. I thought she was going to fall over. And uh, I got off the call I was on and said, what? And she said, you just got a call from Eddie Greenspan's office. And I'd honestly forgotten I'd applied, Marco. Like it was one of those CVs you send out thinking, I'm never going to hear from them, but what's the harm in, in throwing in an application? Um, and so it was, it was a really surreal experience to work with Eddie, to watch this person that you just sort of want to someday maybe get a chance to see in court, um, practice every day and what his process was. And so, um, it was a bit different than Pavel's experience. We didn't have quite as much docket. We did have more lawyers at the shop then than I think are there now. Um, but it wasn't as much docket, but it was really intense degrees of work assigned to a student. I remember being asked to prep some cross questions for a chartered accountant on a fraud case and thinking like, I don't know anything about accounting. And you do that defense lawyer thing where you learn and you ask questions. And, but it was great. It was amazing. It may not be part of your articles, but do you recall the first time you were you went to court? Yeah, I remember my first appearance was a docket appearance at a thousand Finch. Um, and I went down and figured out where the courthouse was in the strip mall uh, and went into the docket court. And someone had told me all about signing in. And so I went and found the clipboard where I needed to sign in. And I sat and waited my turn, which didn't take very long because my client had a co-accused who had counsel who was there. Uh, and the matter starts getting spoken to when I have my script all written, like right out to the spelling of my name, so I don't make any mistakes. And when co-accused counsel was addressing the matter, he indicated he'd gotten disclosure, needed to get instructions, asked for a couple of weeks for an adjournment, and indicated that he would waive 11B in the interim. And everything was fine. Everything was according to my script until he said that, and I didn't have a clue what it meant. I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, and so the JP looked at me and asked if that was an agreeable adjournment. And I said, yes. And they asked if I was also agreeing to waive 11B in the interim. And I panicked and stood there for an awkward second before I said yes. And then I immediately reported back to our supervising lawyer who was still Salvador at the time and said what had happened and gave this and sort of read it out to him like it was the grief that I heard in court. So he laughed at me for an appropriate length of time before he told me what that meant and that I should never do it again, but that it was okay in these particular circumstances. That's amazing because when you're in that situation, you're frozen and you don't really know what to do. And you're just sitting there thinking to yourself, well, another lawyer agreed to it. So how badly could it be? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if he's doing it, it must be the right thing to do. He's doing it. Yeah, exactly. Pavel, 
how about your first time? Do you have a memory of your first time when you were in court? Uh, well, yeah, I, I guess the first time I was in court would have been, I want to say it was probably about 16 or so. Um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, back, back when Ontario put in the requirement to wear a helmet on your bicycle. Uh, and uh, I had this brilliant idea that when I saw a uh, police officer slowly driving his uh, uh, vehicle behind me near the school, I decided to uh, book it and uh, ride a bicycle away as fast as I could. And, you know, he was not too pleased with me. Uh, so he made sure I had to go to court <laughs> for that. But um, in a little town of Wawa, Ontario, population 3000 or so, uh, I didn't want to tell my parents. Uh, so I, I got my grandmother to come with me to court uh, and in just fearful, fearful, uh, uh, you know, morning spent in the room just outside of the courtroom, not actually going in until it was our turn. I remember walking in and it must have been really plain on my face that, you know, I, I was just horrified to be there and very sorry for what I had done. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember the judge's name, but honestly, they, uh, they ended up just giving me a, a warning and telling me not to come back again. But uh, that was my first experience of a courtroom. So obviously that experience stuck with you and, and how has it affected you? No, uh, it, you know, the experience of it all, I, I think you forget about that quite quickly when you're in the actual courtroom every day, it becomes just normal seeing all the people and their fancy outfits sitting in their positions of power and everything else that just becomes the, the working environment. But, oh, that, that impression stayed with me, the feeling of coming before a court and the immense power that they wield over your situation. I think, you know, that's not lost on people. Do you have any fond memories of those early days at the start of your career that give you that feeling of nostalgia from that time? Ah, well, uh, I, I think it's really just the, the sort of first big win uh, for me personally. Uh, it's, uh, you know, that experience where you're sitting in a courtroom at the end of a longer trial, serious charges. Uh, the evidence seems to be maybe going your way, but you kind of lose a little bit of perspective because you're there for advocating for a position. So you think your position is fantastic all the time but you never really know what's going to happen so you're just sitting there and uh, I remember in a trial where there was uh, sort of a, a double home invasion situation uh, the IDs were kind of all over the place but everyone of course pointed to my client as the person responsible because he was the guy sitting in the dock uh, but prior photo lineups didn't match up um, there were other problems but I, I distinctly remember sitting in the courtroom and just having my, my jaw drop in a very unprofessional manner while the judge was reading out the uh, acquittal of my client. I remember looking around, looking to the other people in the courtroom, seeing what their faces looked like at the moment. Uh, I don't think my client had any idea. I actually had to explain to him afterwards what had happened, but um, um you know, he walked out of the courtroom, but I remember that internal feeling. It's, it's really just like a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a rush, right? So 
walking, I was walking out of there for probably about the next three, four hours. I was just on a high like none before. So you're always kind of chasing that, but it's never exactly the same anymore after that first one. Isn't it the worst when the judge decides not to say your client is acquitted of the charges as opposed to not guilty? Because inevitably you have to confirm for your client that they have won, which is a little more anticlimactic. What about you, Kelsey? Do you have any fond memories of those early days of practice that you want to tell us about? Oh, I have so many. But I think for me, the big thing that I miss is the people. Um, at the time that I was practicing in Toronto, so I, I articled at Eddie's shop and stayed as an associate for a year before we came out to Calgary. And at the time I was there, um, it was it was slightly bigger. Um, people like John Navarrete were still there at that time, now Justice Vanessa Christie. Um, Michael Lacey was upstairs with now her worship, Jennifer Thompson. It was just a really great crew of people in that building. And people, I look back now and realize, I knew at the time how generous those lawyers were being with their time to me, but I look back now sort of being at a stage of practice where many of them would have been at that point in time and just realize how many balls lawyers are juggling and just really how generous they were with always answering my questions, no matter how simple they were and talking through things with me. And so I often, it was just the best. We were there, you know, you work the long hours, you're there all the time, but the camaraderie and the energy, just everybody loved what they did and it was just electric. Um, so that's what I miss the most. Kelsey, what is it about the practice of criminal law that still excites you today? I think, yeah, I think for me, it's, um, it's the unpredictability, right? Our job is never the same. Even if you defend two assault cases, they're going to be completely different. Um, and so there's there's never a routine day at the office. Everything is different and exciting. Um, and when you're in a trial courtroom, anything can happen. And all of a sudden, you've got to process all of the knowledge that you have and try and figure out what the right answer is. Um, and somebody who as somebody who does appeal work too, of course, your appeal brain is always going as well, right? Well, that while you're in that room. And so I think I'm a person who loves to be busy and likes to have, you know, 16 things on the go at, at a time. And so your brain just really loves being a trial lawyer because that's what life is like. Um, and then the people, I just really feel it's such a privilege for us to get to know our clients and get to have that window. Nobody else, generally speaking, in that room knows them like we do. And so I just think it's a real privilege and an honor that people trust me to be their voice in a courtroom and that I get to go in there and tell their story and get them the best result that I can. That's a really articulate way of characterizing the relationship between us and our clients. I have never heard it said quite so poignantly. And Pavel, what still excites you about the practice? Uh, for me, um, you know, it's probably just thinking back to the sort of things I've been doing recently, but it's the ability to um, sort of change things for the better for future litigants, really. Um, so if I can find something, anything to argue that has a chance of bettering uh, the situation for people coming up uh, in, in, in the criminal justice system, that's what I really get behind. And, you know, uh, that's what fuels me on, you know, long hours on a legal, legal aid file uh, uh, go by really fast when you're really into some kind of issue preparing the whole thing, uh, strategizing how it's going to come out. Uh, you know, for me recently, um, I had a chance to, to do a form of litigation like this in a, in a youth murder trial where uh, we were able to 
find some publicly filed documents from a different file. But basically, they gave a bunch of uh, uh, um, postal codes for where jury summons go out in the Judicial District of Calgary. And I found, so I did process of elimination and I found which ones were missing from there. Uh, and so we were able to bring an application, say, you know, these particular First Nations aren't included in the jury role uh, makeup ever. Uh, my client is indigenous and I'd like to bring an application to force a change in that. So we actually, you know, usually we're litigating breaches that have happened already. In this case, we uh, uh, brought it well ahead of time. So we actually were able to amend the process before the, the uh, ha process happened for our client. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that I really get excited about these days. And obviously the impact that that has for future litigants is huge as it impacts the representation of the members of the jury. Right. Well, I mean, presumably that's going to stay the case uh, for a while, uh, at least for a year. I know that for sure, because that's when they do the draw. So it, have, it stays for a year. And so they draw the jury panel once a year. Is that how it works? Yeah. So there's 100,000 people in the judici Judicial District of Calgary who have their names randomly chosen. But that random selection process includes those postal codes. And then you get a smaller selection for each time juries are needed. Uh, within that. Sometimes, despite the work that we put in, the decisions may not go our client's way, and we, as lawyers, have to learn to cope with those losses. Pavel, if you have had any of those days, can you shed some light on how you cope with them? Uh, sure, they've occurred, <laughs> uh, first of all. Um, but, uh, it, you know, for me, it's, uh, uh, I try to find, I, you know, First of all, I, I, I rarely give up early. Most of my practice has developed sort of uh, fluidly. Uh, you know, I, at the beginning, all I did was trial criminal defense work. Then I got really upset with a law, so I started doing appeal work. Then I got upset with a lack of change, so I started doing civil work to hit them where it hurts. Uh, but so that's how I deal with loss <laughs> generally. But um, but I, I think you, you eventually do get to a situation where you just can't further address a particular client's issue. And that's the toughest for me. Uh, I think it just stays with me. Uh, and I try to use it to fuel the further applications, the further effort for, on behalf of other clients that come forward. And you know you do to remember that situation, um, especially when you get similar clients in a similar situation. Kelsey? What do you do to get through those moments? Yeah, I, I think for me, a big part of it, sort of from a more practical, personal perspective, um, is letting myself have those emotions and feelings and making a space in my day for it. And so um, I generally will take the rest of the day to sort of think it through and sort of have, have some time to sort of honor that this is a, a really difficult result. For me, often it's um, having a client go out the side door and I'm going out into the hallway with the members of their family that I've gotten to know. And that can really hit home, particularly I've had a, a couple of clients in particular that I can think of who had incredibly young children, one of which I got to sort of wa watch grow up in my boardroom from an infant in a bucket seat into this little toddler who would, you know, pull books off the shelf while we were having meetings. And so we can't escape getting to know our clients as people. Um, and so I think we need to 
let ourselves be disappointed and angry and whatever those feelings are afterwards. But much like Pavel, I usually then will try and book something or sort of plan my day for the following day with something I know I'm really passionate about, something I'm really excited about. And then I take that, that energy and try and convert it into the next case. Because the reality is, if I've done everything I can do for my client, then I can't control the outcome. All I can do is everything that I can. And if I've done that, then I need to be able to let it go to some degree so that I can go on and do that for the next client that needs my help. Kelsey. Tell us about a crazy defense that you've run, if you can think of something, and whether it was successful. Yeah, so I had one in a wiretap case that I can think of, and uh, essentially my co-counsel and I shamelessly plagiarized and adapted an an argument that had been made before the Ontario Court of Appeal in a case called Riley um, by counsel that included, you know, likes of James Lockyer, Joe Wilkinson, um, now Justice Presser. and so it's one of those arguments that sounds really wacky when you say it to a layperson, but in law, it makes total sense. And so essentially it's that the Crown shouldn't be able to lead an intercepted communication where it's vague or its meaning is unclear and the result of it would put the accused in sort of a catch-22 position. So if it goes in, the trier of fact may think it's about X or Y, when in reality it could be about something else entirely. And the only way the defense can do that is by saying, something bad about their client. And so um, in the in Riley, it didn't quite work out so well for appellate counsel because there was a bunch of other moving parts in that particular case that allowed um, the justice and ultimately the court of appeal to say, well, yeah, it was a catch 22, except everyone was clear that this call wasn't about shooting A. Um, and so there was no need for you to bring out the fact that some of the appellants were charged with shooting B. Nobody needed to hear about that. Everybody was clear this call didn't relate to the shooting at quest- in question. And in our case, it was a bit different um, because once essentially we vetted the things that everybody agreed had to be taken out of these intercepts, um, what was left was discussion of an offense for which my client, it was a large operation, had been charged with a number of other similar offenses. And so essentially the argument was, well, this can't go in because if it goes in, it could be about any number of the crimes the Crown alleges my client has committed. We can't be sure it's about this one. And so therefore it can't go in. And uh, so we won that application, which was good. And I think legally the right result, but um, I would run into lay people who work in the court who'd seen the argument later and said like, you know, I know it's probably good in law, but I can't believe you had evidence excluded on the basis your client has committed so many crimes, which I said alleged crimes, um, that we can't be sure which one these calls relate to. Honestly, I love I love that it's the lay people who are an important part of our practice. It's part of my everyday life. They they're in the court every day and they're listening to cases and they are representative of the general public. And when you get to know them, they provide you with that particular perspective that can be useful and make an impact on how you perceive the evidence coming in and and how the witnesses are being perceived. Pavel, what about your crazy defenses? Have you run any? Yeah, a lot. (laughs) I feel sometimes, but um, it all depends on the instructions given, right? Uh, So yeah, I I guess the one that comes to mind uh, is... uh, uh, an interference charge uh, a few years back now where, um, you know, just took a guess uh, during a cross-examination. I mean, it was a no downside risk, uh, but asked the complainant 
whether the uh, curtains match the drapes on uh, our particular client. Uh, and uh, I was surprised to learn that uh, she thought that they did. And uh, so my client uh, was, you know, receding hairline, uh, gray hair on his head. But turns out, uh, at least according to his wife, who I had to call to give evidence subsequently, the curtains did not match the drapes. And so it actually worked. <laughs> That's a very ballsy question. <laughs> Excuse the pun, Pavel. But good for you. That's that's a pretty crazy defense. <laughs> Can I ask you, and I don't mean to put anybody on the spot when I ask these questions, but sometimes it feels to me that I might have felt like I made a mistake in a trial that had this huge impact on the trial, and it may or may not have. But has that ever happened to either of you? Could you shed some light on that? I think the one where I sometimes get those thoughts Marco relates to election, right? And of course, it's the, it's the client's choice how to elect, but of course, they, they ask us for our input and we give them, we don't just say, you know, you have these choices, make a choice. We give them some information and some insights. And, and I think those are the ones that I second guess the most if a trial doesn't go my way um, was the election. Should I have elected differently? Should I have had a prelim? Should I not have had a prelim? Like what, what might've been different? If I, if I advise my client in a different way. A lot of it's in our own minds because you want to, you can't help but feel that it's a decision that you made. How about you, Pavel? Uh, well, yeah. Um, I, I have a particular one that I always think back to, frankly. Um, the, uh, it was a case I, I ran when I was still in Toronto. Um, uh, and you know, when you're a junior counsel, you have a really different appreciation of uh, what people may think of, you know, people who potentially have a criminal history, uh, that sort of thing. So, it, you know, your decision to put somebody up irrespective of that is a little different, that, I think, than it is now for me. I mean, I think people are far more likely to believe somebody if their story sounds true and it doesn't really matter where they come from. Um, but, you know, back then uh, I had a story where, according to my client, uh, he said that the police uh, went into a place and they ended up planting some uh, narcotics on him during a search warrant, right? And I mean, it fit uh, uh, during review of the disclosure materials. And uh, even as it came out, the evidence came out in a trial it did make sense. Uh, you know, there was an officer that basically wrote himself out of the situation testifying that he actually wasn't near this ultimate search where they recover uh, a fist sized piece of crack cocaine from my client's pocket, allegedly. Right. Uh, and another part of this was two officers go into a room, uh, do a pat down search, somehow miss this fist sized piece of crack cocaine, take the client out into a hallway uh, where there aren't other people around uh, and do another search and suddenly there it is, right? So, I mean, that, that's the, the basis upon which we ran the, the defense on the Crown's case. Uh, but I always feel like uh, if I put my client up to testify to that, uh, maybe it would have went differently, but you know, who knows? 
uh, hindsight is always 2020. And it seemed like a pretty persuasive pitch at the time to me. Have any of these situations ever made you reconsider the practice of criminal defense? These are, or any experiences that you've undergone. Pavel? Uh, well, actually, I thought, you know, I, I, I haven't actually thought about leaving criminal defense, uh, but I have previously thought of maybe being a prosecutor. <laughs> so when I was growing up, you know, uh, it was just that whole idea. Uh, it, it seemed to appeal to me until I sort of ran into law school, ran into class and discovered that uh, policies and things that prosecutors sometimes have to follow are not easy on a personal level. Uh, and I just didn't want to get behind that, frankly. Um, you know, I think uh, Kelsey alluded to this, but when we were working at CLASP, there was this mandatory charging policy in domestic files uh, where, you know, even if uh, uh, the obvious sort of abuser in a situation would say that uh, I, he was struck uh, during the context of this particular physical interaction, then uh, everybody would get charged. So even the obvious abuse victim in a domestic situation would, would get charged and then we'd have to deal with it as students in the court, in the courthouse, right. For months and until somebody did the right thing. Um, and I just, I, I couldn't get behind that because I knew it was, it stemmed from a mandatory policy that people on the other side had to follow. So I'd rather be in charge of my own decisions to the degree that I can be. I can appreciate uh, that perspective. Certainly Kelsey, same question. Well, I think um, most of my colleagues that know me well know that if I'm particularly exasperated after a loss, I'll start talking about uh, my fantasy life outside of law, which generally involves, it started out as raising goats, then it moved to chickens. And now it's sort of this chicken and goat combo thing. I'm going to run away to the country and uh, live off the land and, and run some goat yoga classes. Um, but in seriousness, um, I've never really thought about being a crown. Um, I think I hit that stage in my career like a lot of female defense lawyers do in particular when you start thinking about having kids and it, would it be easier to be a crown? I would get a mat leave, these sorts of things. Um, and for me, it was a pretty quick assessment because I have a degree of flexibility in my life as defense counsel that I don't think I would have if someone else was telling me how many days of prep I'm allowed in a year or how many trials I need to run and assigning me files. Um, and so I really do like, it's not for any sort of, I think that there are ways, you know, Pavel's talked about mandatory policies and certainly uh, colleagues that are with the Crown. I know there's flexibility there and, and they get great support from their ACPs. But um, for me, it's really just, I like my life. I like the flexibility that I have. And I really feel passionate about what I do and who I help. And so for me, it would be this or nothing. Yeah. So you touched on something uh, that I want to follow up on. Can you shed some light on parenting as a defense lawyer and then the impact that it's had on you? Yeah, um, I mean, the standard COVID answer, I think, for all parents is everything is fine. Everything is great. Everything is fine. Um, certainly, uh, running a law office with two small kids that are not in school um, has been interesting. Um, but I think... I think it's overall, it's a net positive. Like my kids hear about, and you know, obviously the things that we do, um, we don't talk about explicitly with anybody and certainly not with small children, but like degrees of things, why, why mom does the job she does, why it's important, why she has to go 
to the jail and see clients and why they're there, which um, my kids are young enough that it's like people are going through a difficult time, which is the probably the most age appropriate way to explain it. Um, but they're building a degree of empathy that I don't think other kids have. So I think that it's really great for kids that are growing up with parents as, as defense counsel to sort of have a perspective that I certainly didn't have growing up about how complicated the world is. And the balance is tricky. Um, and I think it's incredibly important that people both have and lean on supports that they have both in the bar for their practice and also in personal life um, childcare situations. Of course, if you're in the middle of a murder trial, and somebody gets sick at school, you're probably, it's gonna to be tough to go pick them up. You're gonna need some backup. Um, but I also think a benefit of the pandemic, at least out here, I don't know what it's been like in Ontario has been everybody sort of working from home and recognizing that we are all sort of full people. We aren't just the person that shows up in a room. And, and there certainly has been more understanding I think by both Crown and Court about people having other aspects of their lives that they need to tend to. Um, but particularly in Calgary, it's a very sort of small shop bar. We don't have things like Pinkowski's used to be or Hicks Block, these, these larger criminal firms. And so I think it really becomes about leaning on your colleagues for the supports that you can um, so that you can try and, and feel like you're keeping all of the balls in the air that you need to be juggling. Pavel, do you have anything to add to that? Um Maybe a couple back. Uh, I, I really, as the managing partner at the firm, I really love hearing when when my partner says she wants to go uh, run the uh, chicken farm. Um, it's a high, it's a highlight for me. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but with the kids, uh, uh, you know, COVID has for me personally been sort of a blessing. I, I like I, I spend more time with them now than I did before um, and working from home, you know, on larger sort of files gives me the flexibility to, you know, interact with them uh, when they need it, not when it suits my schedule, right? Sometimes. So, you know, from that perspective, I think it's been, it's been great. And, uh, you know, uh, unlike everything before, I mean, our lives are just completely different. You know, everything was organized, uh, around the kids sort of being transported from one place to another, sometimes not involving us. Uh, and now we're just here most of the time, at least one of us, right? So that's been great. Let me ask you, how do you decompress after a long day at the office or a difficult trial, Pavel? Uh, to decompress, uh, I mean, we do some, we do some biking sometimes uh, as a family. Uh, I, I like to get out and do something physical if I can, just to forget about the day uh, and just concentrate on something else uh, for a while. How about you, Kelsey? What do you do to decompress? Yeah, I always find a really key part of it for me is to get all of the thoughts out of my brain. And so whether it's my partner or another trusted colleague to just sort of vent out all of the stuff that's in my head and, and talk about how the day went. Um, and then, yeah, getting outside if I can, if if the weather's good, making like a nice meal and just spending some time cooking, which is something I enjoy. Um, doing something that is going to kind of recharge my batteries and, and get me ready for the next day. I'd ask you to take your mind to the start of a trial. Do you have any superstitions or rituals that you engage in to bring you luck? Um, 
I certainly when I get to a courtroom, I'm very particular about stuff that I want to have on my counsel table. And so I always hate if I get to court and I realize I forgot to throw the pad of post-its that needs to be there or, you know, three different colors of highlighters and flags and things on my desk. Um, and then in terms of sort of other less practical things, I guess. Um, I used to have my parents gave me this necklace when I graduated from law school that I used to wear anytime I was going to court for something, you know, that's substantive. Um, and over the years, I've sort of, that's gone away. Uh, but I have a great aunt who's almost 90 now, who was just one of these kick-ass women who lived a life that was like, nobody did in her day. Um, and that gave me a ring that I guess it's sort of, it, it symbolizes who she was when she got divorced. She didn't give the ring back. She got it, she took it to a jeweler and got it made into something else for herself to keep that she wore. Um, and so she gave that to me. Um, and so when I feel like I need a little extra backbone, a little extra spunk, then I'll wear that ring to court. And I just feel like I get a bit of her vibe. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. How about you, Pavel? You know, uh, I usually am so hyper-focused on the litigation you know, uh, that uh, my big challenge is just to make sure I don't forget the other things, you know, my wallet, my keys, <laughs> like that's, so if I can remember to get all the stuff that I need into, into the car, uh, I'm happy. Tell me about a lawyer that you feel privileged to have had the opportunity to see in action throughout your career. Yeah, for, for me, it's Hirsch Walsh, uh, for sure. Um, you know, it, when we came uh, Hang on for a second. Did you say Hirsch Walsh? Yes. The legendary Hirsch Walsh? Yeah, absolutely. Let's just stop for a second and appreciate how great of a name is Hirsch Walsh for a lawyer. I'm jealous of names like that. That's like the name of a lawyer from a classic novel. Obviously, he was the counsel on Milgard and in a very unique circumstance, was able to call evidence at the Supreme Court of Canada, which none of us can really even fathom. But if you read up on him, you also learn that he was a hostage negotiator on separate occasions, securing the safe release of hostages. And he was just a Renaissance figure in our criminal justice system that it is astonishing to me that somebody of my vintage would have had the benefit and opportunity to do a trial alongside with such a just a legend in our system so tell us a bit about that Pavel yeah so uh, we had a case uh, Kelsey joined me as a, a co-counsel uh, it's a homicide case where we almost didn't get to be uh, 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 co-accused counsel with, with, with Hirsch, but our, our client ditched uh, current counsel right on the eve of his jury trial. And so I guess Hirsch had a decision about what he wanted to do because <laughs> uh, he could either go on with the other guy or go with us. I think it wasn't a personal decision. It was a strategic decision for his, his client. Um, but uh, long story short, there was a, uh, Mr. Big involved and the guy who was still going through trial, he was the one who was caught in the Mr. Big giving the statement. So I think Hirsch figured maybe I'll go in this other trial where that statement isn't coming in for sure. This, this is pretty hard, right? So, um, so yeah, no, he, he, he was fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, one thing that I always remember from that trial 
is uh, uh, one of the questions, there was a, a line of evidence that sur surrounded our client and his client and a recorded phone call that was alleged to have happened during the context of this violent interaction uh, that, that was the homicide. And uh, there was voice identification that was at issue. So uh, a witness for the Crown, it was called, was uh, just a, a, a girl who had been at a party. Uh, and uh, when these group of people departed from there, they went on to this location where, where the homicide occurred. Uh, and she was called to identify who was on the phone. Uh, when that phone call happened, because she was the girlfriend of his client, right? Um, so, but he didn't really know, she didn't really know our client. Uh, and so I established that through the evidence, she'd met him maybe one time, uh, one or two times. She didn't really like him, didn't talk to him, didn't spend any time with him. Uh, you know, can't be really sure about uh, uh, his voice identification. Of course, she, she, denied the ultimate question, which is you, you're not sure it was him, right? She just, you know, despite all the facts to the contrary, uh, she was 100% positive, right? Uh, then I had to sit down. Uh, but then Hirsch got up and um, he just started talking with her uh, in a very, you know, interpersonal kind of way. And he would get away with things that none of us would get away with in court. And so he just started badgering this witness, basically, repeatedly asking her the same question. So you would ask, ask, ask a question, not get the right answer. He'd move on to a little bit of stuff and he'd circle right back. Same question again, slightly different words, right? And I think he must have done that three or four times before she finally just, I think, wanted to just get out of the room. <laughs> And she just agreed, you know, but that's, that's Hirsch for you, right? Like he, he, not only was he able to establish this real personal dialogue, like he wasn't a, he wasn't a, a, a an aggressive cross-examiner. He was very uh, approachable and uh, tried to establish rapport really fast. And he was good at that, but also he had that, you know, senior litigator thing that just let him get away with those things a little bit. You know, the prosecutors would be slow to slow to object. The judges would be like, "No, no, if Mr. Mr. Walsh wants to do this, I'm sure he's got a reason for it." So, no, he was fantastic, and and you know, he was such a such an approachable guy. So, I was really uh, fortunate and happy to uh, have had at least one sort of lengthier proceeding with him. That sounds like an incredible experience. Kelsey, I know you were involved in that. Is it the same answer for you or is there somebody else that you want to tell us about that you've had the benefit of observing uh, during the course of your practice? Yeah, I think for me, it's a tie. It's a tie between Hirsch and, and Eddie, of course. Um, and they were both sort of in that same vintage, right? That same sort of uh, training and, and era of being defense counsel. But each approached their jobs quite differently. They both did have that sort of senior counsel ability to, to ask questions and to throw things out there and a little bit more theatrics than probably most of us would be able to get away with. Um, Hirsch was a guy who cross-examined often without notes or with like a few sort of scribbled 
notes. He just would know his file inside out and backwards. And it was just incredible to watch somebody who has that sort of ability. Not only, of course, that's not his only case. He's got all of these cases and he can keep all of the facts straight and, and the client straight and, and the evidence straight. Um, Eddie was much more um, preparation and, and just a different style of preparation, right? There was uh, notes and folders and documents within the folders. And, and I sort of, certainly, I think, adopted a lot more of his prep tendencies into, into my own practice. Um, but really what they taught me, I came into criminal defense and, and to law generally without any, I don't even know I'd, if I'd met a lawyer before I went to law school. There were certainly no lawyers in my family. I didn't really know anything. And so both of them were instrumental in teaching me what it means to be a defense lawyer and barrister's culture and all of those pieces and so generous with their time and, and mentorship. Um, because certainly when I came in, I sort of thought, these people will let us do a little bit of research and maybe follow them around and we'll learn some things by osmosis, but they don't need anybody. They know everything. They know all of the stuff. They're going to make all of these calls. And I remember my first day of articles and just like it slapped me in the face how wrong that was. There was just no ego with basically anybody I met that day. But my articling partner and I, uh, Malcolm McRae, got to the office and I don't think they really knew what to do with us. We you know, introduced ourselves to each other, had a cup of coffee and they said, well, Eddie's at the Court of Appeal. Go go down to Osgoode Hall and watch this appeal. And so we did, and I couldn't tell you today what appeal that was, and I've gone on Canley and tried to figure it out, um, and I can't, um, and I don't remember who was on the panel, but this whole time I was just mesmerized watching just this giant of criminal law, and there would be questions from the bench, like difficult, insightful questions, and he would immediately have an answer, and it was this back and forth that was just uh, totally mesmerizing. And then the court took a break, I think, to determine if they could, or if they would reserve or if they were going to decide the appeal that day. And we went out in the hallway with Eddie and then he looked at both Malcolm and I and like very earnestly asked us, like, how do you think that went? Like, do you think, what do you think they're going to do? And I, was, I remember standing there thinking like, you're Eddie freaking Greenspan, man. Like I am an, a first day of my articles, man. I have no idea. Like you tell me how it went. Um, but he genuinely wanted to know, like, did you think, what did you think of that question? And it just taught me, and then I learned it again from Hirsch and, you know, on other files and the file Pavel's talking about, about we have to collaborate in this job. Like we have to talk to each other. We have to get the read of the room from other people that are there or what does this defense sound plausible to you? Do you think it's good? What about this motion? Um, this is a collaborative exercise. You make it really hard on yourself if you try and go it alone, even if you've been practicing like Hirsch for, you know, 45 plus years, right? Thank you, Kelsey. That, that's a great anecdote. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. Kelsey, Pavel, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on The Law Garage and sharing your experiences with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe there's something to gain from just talking to our colleagues. Something I've really missed throughout this pandemic, as you may have guessed. Before we go, is there anything you want to plug or let us know where we can find you? So I'll plug quickly our local Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, Marco. I think in the bio, um, you said I was on the exec since 2018, I wish. I've been VP since earlier this year, been on the exec for about a year. Um, but it's a great local organization. It's growing. Uh, there's tons of resources out here. And so if people are practicing in Alberta, either exclusively or at all, um, check us out, sign up for a membership. It's a great organization. That's great, Pavel. 
Oh, you can always find us on our website. Uh, and if you're there anyways, you can check out the Defense Toolkit. I like to put that out every week on a Saturday. So if you got nothing to read, uh, some summarized cases for you. That's great. You can find the link to the website on our homepage at The Law Garage. Thank you for listening to The Law Garage Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out Season 1 and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansomal. The Law Garage is a J-Mike podcast production.